everyone, and welcome to another episode of A1 Insights. I'm your host, Sophia Navard, and today we're honoring Native American and Alaska Native Heritage Month. We are joined by Dr. Emily Houses, who will be talking us through an overview of the Indian Health Service and its relation to Native American and Alaska Native health outcomes. We'll also discuss a few historical events that have fueled the health disparities within these communities. And then we'll close off with ways in which you, our listeners, can affect change starting today. Now let's get started. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right. I first heard you speak back at the 2020 summit um, that A1 held at the virtual convention on dismantling racism and saving moms and babies. And so your presentation was absolutely riveting and very insightful. And so we are all happy, extremely happy to have you back. Thank you again. Thanks. That was such a great opportunity. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad to be back. All right. Awesome. We're glad to have you back. All right. To start us off, for those who aren't familiar with your work, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your clinical nursing background, and the work you do within various Native American and Alaska Native communities? Sure. So um, I am... um, Right now, I'm a research scientist with the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation, and I do community-based research really directed by what the community wants. So I kind of go all over the place in um, the research topics that I do. I came here, uh, originally I was a musician, then I had an injury that kept me from performing, and so I had to look for something else. And I found nursing. And I went into nursing because I um, was really uh, compelled to work in end-of-life care after some family experiences working with hospice nurses. Uh, And so I went into um, nursing intending to be working at end-of-life and um, oncology. But then when I was getting my master's as an oncology nurse practitioner, I observed that I was at Yale University of all places, and there I was looking at the research um, that was being produced by nurses uh, and nurse scientists, and I saw that there just weren't, there were almost no Native Americans doing the research. It was all other people writing about us, and they weren't always writing about us in a way that was respectful or even correct, and so I kind of changed direction and thought instead of being the person who was there at the bedside um, impacting a person or family, I was going, I thought that I would have a much bigger impact if I could work um, at the population level. So I ended up getting my PhD from Yale and I worked in academia for a while. Um, I actually ended up getting tenure at a um, Research One University and that just wasn't a very good fit. and now I'm working with a nonprofit uh, research organization. All right. Thank you again for your work, Emily. All right. To give our listeners more context, uh, can you share an overview of the history of IHS and how this agency came to be? Absolutely. Um, to talk about IHS, we have to go back into the history of um, you know U.S. and the United States and the history of this continent. Which, um, so I'll start first by saying that when we talk about American Indians and Alaska Natives, we have to be really clear that we're not talking about one group. We're not talking about, you know, we use that label out of convenience, but we're really 
talking about a whole lot of different discrete uh, tribes, nations, pueblos. And um, right now there's, I can't remember exactly, but I think it's 574 federally recognized and then many other state recognized um, uh, tribes, nations, and pueblos uh, around the country. And then we have the First Nations and Métis and um, uh, Inuit people in Canada. Uh, and so that's what makes up North, North America. So we, we say American Indian, Alaska Native uh, when we're talking about the United States, but really we're talking about a lot of different um, distinct cultural groups. And we were all here long before there was contact from anybody else and we were doing just fine uh and just to make that clear um when there was contact and what eventually became the united states there uh, through a series of disasters the indigenous peoples were um, kind of forced to give up their land and put on reservations or assigned reservations and in that process we signed treaties in those treaties were conditions that we would trade our land for healthcare. So we paid up front for our healthcare. That healthcare eventually became the Indian Health Service. Um, and we have actually, you know, that has been established and has been fought in court. And so we know that, that we have this right. We are sovereign nations and we have healthcare. As, as a result of our treaties. So that's the, the basic background of the Indian Health Service and how it came to be. The Indian Health Service is not health insurance, it's a healthcare provider. Uh, although in the past, the Indian Health Service was much more comprehensive and it had you know maternal, infant, newborn care and labor and delivery and um, a lot of other things. A lot of Indian Health Service hospitals had inpatient units and um, surgical units and all this other stuff that you would expect out of a normal hospital. Due to underfunding, it now is um, it now some of them can provide emergency room services or urgent care, um, but for the most part, it's primary care. Um, the Indian Health Service is also divided around the country into a series or, or geographically defined service units. And funding is based on who lives within each geographic service unit. This is kind of outdated because um, the, they decide who lives in each service unit based on which tribes are assigned to that service unit, which tribes are located within each service unit. But native people are uh, all over the place. We live, um, in fact, about 70, 78% of us live in urban areas that aren't in our service units, but our funding is based on our service unit. So it's a real flawed funding um, scheme. So it's underfunded already. And then the, um, the calculations to decide how many people it needs to fund for are flawed. So it's grossly underfunded. Um, so I can walk into, in, I as a Chiricahua Fort Sill Apache enrolled member of my tribe, which is based in Oklahoma, I can walk into any, any Indian Health Service hospital and receive primary care. But if I need something outside of an Indian Health Service hospital, like say 
Um, I need specialty care for pretty much anything that isn't offered outside of primary care. I have to be in Oklahoma at the service unit that's uh, assigned to my tribe, which is in Lawton, Oklahoma, south of Oklahoma City. This is um, pretty problematic because I've never actually lived in Oklahoma. <laughs> um, and we can get into, I can give you an example of this down the road. Um, so it becomes really concrete, but you can start to imagine how when you have between 70 and 80 percent of a population of people who have this as their healthcare um, uh, reality, you can see, you can start to imagine how this contributes to health outcomes. Yeah, it's very flawed. Yeah. All right. All right, let's take a short break and we'll share some stats with our listeners. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Minority Health, as of 2018, American Indian and Alaska Native infants were 2.7 times more likely than non-Hispanic white infants to die from accidental death before the age of one year. American Indian and Alaska Native infants are also 50% more likely to die from complications related to low birth weight as compared to non-Hispanic white infants. In 2019, American Indian and Alaska Native mothers were almost three times as likely to receive late or no prenatal care as compared to non-Hispanic white mothers. And according to the CDC, the infant mortality rate was 8.2 for every 1,000 live births in American Indian and Alaska Native communities. All right, welcome back. Again, we're joined by Dr. Emily Houses. Um, we just heard a brief overview of the IHS's history. To piggyback off that, Emily, can you share with us how the history of the IHS and U.S. history kind of overlap uh, to produce the current day health outcomes that we see? Sure. Um, so the history of the IHS and the... Um, I'm having a, um, a pause. I was in the middle of another thought when you asked the question. So the history of the I, yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking about those statistics that you were, you were citing. And um, so I was involved in a project. If we can just take a step back and think about those stats for a second. Um, we did some research a few years ago with a um, writing group, a research group out of the National Cancer Institute, looking at national statistics and projecting out health uh, and particularly mortality statistics um, by race and ethnicity, these mortality trends. And this is pre-COVID. So all of this has changed because people's health-seeking patterns have changed during COVID. But pre-COVID, when we looked at trends in healthcare seeking, we saw that almost every other race and ethnic group was improving. So like maternal complications of pregnancy, deaths, you know, related to that, they were decreasing in every other group pretty much. Um, but 
it was really striking that there was no change. And in fact, things were increasing for Native Americans. And it was really difficult to write about because um, they hadn't changed and they were so high in Native Americans already that it was such an outlier that there was no way to really characterize it in the research. Mm-hmm. And I suppose COVID didn't make things any better as well. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to redo this whole analysis with COVID because everybody, not just Native American, but everybody, uh, their health-seeking behaviors have changed. And so uh, the numbers are going to be all wonky. Yeah. So so going back to your question about overlaying um, Native American health and U.S. history. Oh, boy. That's a difficult question because we um, we have so many points in time where uh, the uh, U.S. policy towards Native Americans has dictated how um, Native American health has been approached by the federal government. So um, originally or not originally, but for a long time, there was a um, policy of termination, which was they they were just going to get rid of us. And so there was very little attention paid to long-term care or, you know, long-term health. It was um, basically, we can't have people just falling over dead. So we're going to do everything we can to make sure that it looks like we're taking care of people. You know, we're, we're treating immediate problems, um, immediate infections, for example. Um, and, uh, boy, after termination, what was the next one? Um, I think it was assimilation. And during assimilation, it was like, okay, so we can't just kill them. So we're going to try and break up all of these cultural groups so that they will intermarry and they'll eventually just disappear. So unlike with uh, African-American and Black populations where you have the one-drop rule, with Native Americans, it was like, let's just get them to marry. And then we had relocation, which was a policy where they were trying to convince Native people to move to urban areas, which is one of the reasons why we have such high population um, levels in urban areas. Uh, And what was interesting about that is that Native people moved to the urban areas, but they retained all of their cultural values. They just did it in the urban areas and they would travel back and forth. So we still have this very transient population. and they would go back home for healthcare uh, because we like uh, the cultural um, characteristics of the Indian Health Service. It's very, we know that it's very culturally friendly, and we go there for our healthcare, even when we qual- when we can get private healthcare and go someplace else. Um, so after assimilation um, with Nixon was. Um, self-determination. And that's kind of where we are now, where tribal sovereignty is being recognized. The government is consulting with tribes or trying to consult with tribes, at least thinking, making efforts, kind of breathing towards uh, consulting with tribes and recognizing that with tribal sovereignty, they can't just make decisions about us or for us. They actually have to work with us when they make decisions about our care. 
So there's this, you can see that we've gone from a policy of genocide to a policy of, okay, yeah, we did agree to doing this, so I guess we're going to have to follow through. So how does that, how does that show in um, health outcomes? Uh, well, until, you know, the late 70s, we had um, with uh, women's care, they were uh, sterilizing women without their knowledge or consent. And then that's part of trying to eliminate Native American people. And, you know, I know women who were sterilized without their knowledge or consent. Um, and it's horrible. Uh, you know, they just couldn't have babies and they didn't know why. Um, or they would have one child and then they would be sterilized uh, immediately following the birth. Um, and that's part of that policy where the doctors would do it and everybody was like, oh yeah, that's just what we do. Uh, and that, that kind of culture um, uh, is part of Indian healthcare. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples. There's, there's a lot of examples of really unethical research in Native communities that also is part of those policies. I try not to dwell on the negative. I totally understand. Um, let's see. All right, well, did you, would you like to share with us a story of, I think, was it giving birth to your second? your second son ah. um, and how, you know, you so, know improvements yeah. have been made since then with regard to Medicaid and, and access to healthcare and totally. these communities. Mm -hmm. So let's pivot a little bit and let's talk about how things have changed in the recent, in recent history. Um, we now have the Affordable Care Act and with the Affordable Care Act there, um, so pre prior to the Affordable Care Act um, in the mid 70s, the Indian Healthcare Improvement Act was passed, but it was so. This is this law that says, okay, we have to fund Indian healthcare, and this was part of the self determination uh, period, the early self determination period. But the an Indian Healthcare Improvement Act, um, uh, the budget uh, it it allowed for this budget, but the budget was at the mercy of the sitting president. So every year the president would have to approve the budget. Um, and so there were times when the sitting president would not approve the budget. And if you don't approve the budget, then you have to use the Indian Health Service budget from the previous year. And we had one president who just didn't approve it for his entire term. And it was actually two terms, I believe. Um, yeah, eight years we, we went without an improvement or without a change in the budget. And during that time, healthcare costs doubled. And so the Indian Health Service took this major hit in, its, um, in the amount of money that it had to work with. This also, um, you know, it, and so then when the next president came in, he couldn't, uh, and it was a he, he couldn't um, just double the IHS budget because then everybody would be like, what the heck are you doing? You can't double the IHS budget. Um, and IHS has been struggling to catch up ever since. So um, then the Affordable Care Act was passed and the Affordable Care Act made the Indian Health Serv or Indian Healthcare Improvement Act budget 
um, automatically renewable. So then it wasn't at the mercy of the sitting president. So this is why the Affordable Care Act is so important to us because now we, we don't, we're not just vulnerable in the same way. We got to keep the Affordable Care Act. It also allowed for um, Native people in exchange states to um, be eligible for Medicaid. And with these Medicaid dollars, we have an enormous amount of money going into, um, into the Indian Health Service, which has also been this huge infusion of dollars. Okay, so money, money, money. Um, it's all kind of complicated. But you asked me about my story. One of the things that the, uh, the, the ACA did was it um, made uh, maternal care uh, covered. So this is so awesome, maternal care. We need maternal care. We need um, women to be able to not worry about where they're going to give birth. When I had my second son, I was pregnant with my second son, and I was figuring that I would go to IHS, which is where I was born, and um, it would be covered because it was in an in-house procedure. Because you know, that's of course they had an L and D unit, um, and that's just where I would go. And I was pregnant, and I went to the IHS in Santa Fe. And I was like, okay, we're all set. We're going to have this baby. And they said, oh, no, we closed our L&D unit last year. And um, I was like, what? <laughs> and then they said, oh, and you're out of your service area, so you're going to have to go back to Lawton for your health care. And I was like, I'm not going back to Lawton. I never lived in Lawton. I don't live in Oklahoma. I'm from New Mexico. And in fact, my tribe is from New Mexico. We were relocated to Oklahoma without, um, you know, we were tricked into going back there. We didn't want to live there. Uh, and that was a hundred years ago. So uh, I'm going to be here. So at the time, there was no coverage for maternal care not through the state, not through anybody. And I didn't qualify for health insurance because pregnancy was a pre-existing condition. So I was totally out of luck and I was kind of freaking out because I was, I had this baby coming along and I was in my PhD program. I didn't, uh, they, and I was doing field work. So if I wanted to have my baby through my university healthcare, I would have to go back to Connecticut, which I was not going to do. Um, Connecticut is a great place, but New Mexico is my home. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. <laughs> of yeah. course, of course. So um, after doing a lot of talking and um, thinking through it, I'd already had one totally uncomplicated, healthy birth. Um, I, My husband and I decided that we would have a home birth. And it wasn't because we were really... Um, empowered by the movement of home births in America. It wasn't because we um, believed so strongly in home births as a safe alternative to a hospital birth. It was because we didn't have health insurance. Mm -hmm. And when I called the hospital to ask them how much it would cost to have a, a healthy, they didn't answer. Yeah, if I wanted to have a healthy, uncomplicated, unmedicated birth at the hospital, they wouldn't even return my phone calls. Yeah, and I had no alternatives. 
And so we worked at, worked it out. The IHS would cover my first two trimesters and the third trimester. Um, the home birth midwives would come in and they'd do that last trimester of prenatal care. And then we did the home birth at home. And a pool and my son was born and he's a um, delightful 14 year old now. And policies have changed a lot since then. But at the time it was scary to one day wake up and realize that I, um, that everything that I had planned for and expected was not going to happen because of federal policy. Yeah, and these are the kinds of decisions that people have to make all the time. And even still, um, I'm doing research with American Indians in New Mexico, and they there's a big knowledge gap about the Affordable Care Act um, people don't sign up for the exchange when they can. They don't, um, there are a lot of people who make just enough money to not qualify. And so they think that they can't afford health insurance, even though they can, but they're so intimidated by the system. They're so worried about things, um, like, uh, monthly payments or premiums. I guess that's the same thing as monthly payments. They're so, they don't know what copays are, um, up until very recently, it, you could just go into IHS and everything would be taken care of. But, uh, and, well, so that means that a lot of Native people just don't understand the language of health insurance. They don't understand how these systems work. And so instead of weeding through all of it, they just don't get health care. And I don't blame them because it's totally intimidating. It's impossible. And the number of phone calls you have to make and the way that people treat you when you make these phone calls and you say, wait, what's a copay? They, they treat you terribly. They treat you like you're really stupid. And it's not that you're stupid. It's just that you have never been socialized into the system of health insurance. And so we're, this is one of the reasons why we have such terrible outcomes for health in Native American communities. Okay. Well, Emily, we've discussed the history and these outcomes. Um, to close us off, you know, what are what are the points of influence? You know, how can how can we help? So, what are the points of influence for our clinicians, and how can non clinicians, you know, get involved? Whether it's volunteering with, you know, helping to sign up um, families for healthcare, whether it's you know, providing respectful um, care and you know, perhaps, you know, getting involved with policymakers, how can, how can we, how can we help, right? Sure. So everybody can help by supporting their local lawmakers and educating their local lawmakers on how important it is to pass the budgets for that, um, are for the, uh, what is it? Oh gosh. The Department of the Interior, and the um, Health and Human Services, because IHS budget comes out of both of those um, departments. Uh, people are shocked to know that the IHS budget, a large portion of it comes out of the Department of the Interior. And there's a whole other historical part to that that I don't, uh, I don't think we have time for. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of, stupid, but well, it's stupid from my perspective. I'm sure it made a lot of sense to somebody in 1886. Mm -hmm. Things have changed. Yeah. Things have changed. Yeah. Um, so everybody can support those budgets and um, just trust that when the people who make those budgets make those budgets, they know what they're doing. 
we don't need to nickel and dime them. Uh, so that's something everybody can do. Um, clinicians can have a lot of patience and help their uh, help their actual patients understand all of the language of healthcare and the language of health insurance and help walk people through. Um, we have uh, native people who are signed up for Medicaid and they uh, Medicaid is a complicated system and uh, nobody really ever explains it in a way that is understandable. They use a lot of jargon. So if we can walk it back whenever we can and say, you know, um, so the copay or the amount of money that you pay when you come in for a visit and just use the explanation next to the, the jargon, that makes a big difference for anybody, not just a native person, but anybody who's using these uh, complicated health insurance things. Um, uh, follow up with folks. If somebody is not coming into your office, it's not because they don't like you or it's not because they don't want healthcare. It's usually because they don't understand it or they're intimidated or they've got something else going on. I've seen so many clinicians who assume that their patients don't care about their health. And I don't know anybody who doesn't care about their health. There's ne that, is, that is never the um the reasoning yeah i remember you touching on this during the summit on you know how clinicians may think uh why is it that my native patients are always no shows or why don't they care about their health and as opposed to just um, maybe putting themselves in, in the person's shoes or being a little bit more understanding because there are you know certain inequities and disparities that are going on in the background um, but i do remember you speaking on this and and that is a big thing yeah and I think the the last thing is um, to be really self-aware and think about when you have interactions that go wrong, um, look in the mirror because it's not always the patient's fault. The, um, the number of microaggressions that happen in the clinical exchange um, are so plentiful it's painful and so make time to debrief and talk through if something seemed weird find somebody that you can you can consult with because um what we're seeing now with elders is that even if an elder has health insurance has everything in place to, to receive health care if they've had a negative experience in the past they won't go to health care down the road. And so you don't want to be that that point of service where they have the negative health, negative experience. And you may not even realize it as a clinician or as somebody in the office. Um, but uh, Native people, when we look at national surveys, they are, you know, like more than double likely to have had negative experiences. Um, you know, 15% of Native people report having experienced discrimination in healthcare as opposed to 3% of white people. So it's happening. You may not see it, but you need to be aware and, you know, make sure you look in the mirror if you're um, working cross-culturally. Mm -hmm. All right, Emily, um, any additional parting thoughts for our listeners, nurses and non-nurses? Um, I just really appreciate having this opportunity to um, chat with you and to share this 
Uh, and I wish that we didn't have to have just November for Native American Heritage Month. I wish that every month was, like for me, every month is Native American Heritage Month. All right. Well, hopefully you can come back in the near future and join us for a part two. Um, until then, thank you so much you know, for joining us today. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. I know you've been traveling, and so I appreciate just taking a moment out of your day to join us and, and share your insights with our listeners today. Well, thank you. All right, Emily.